So recently I was having a discussion with a young fellow and he was telling me about his uh, initial uh, experience practicing in the Zen tradition and where his understanding was that you just sit and at some point in the future poof you get enlightened and I said yeah that's that's an understanding from some traditions that you just do the practice and in time factors come together wisdom grows and understanding or realization dawns in the mind I had a similar experience uh, when I first started practicing with Upandita I had been practicing with <coughs> Western uh, Dharma teachers for uh, about eight or nine years doing retreats um, with all of them and then uh, Saito Upandita came to America for the first time and I went to practice with him to do a three-month retreat and even at that time I was not I was not very skillful with my practice I was still pretty struggling and uh, at some point in the uh, in the course of my interviews with him every day over the course of three months I told him that you know in response to one of his questions I said well I, I guess you just sit and, and do your practice and then one day poof you get enlightened and he just burst out laughing I didn't know whether to feel uh, embarrassed or <laughs> what but I later came to understand that in his tradition in the Theravada mm -hmm. tradition coming out of Burma they don't have that understanding but they have instead an understanding that the journey from mundane ordinary conditioned life of confusion and bewilderment and suffering to a more exalted state we'll call it enlightened to some degree that there's a very clear map that there's a very clear journey that one goes on through study through practice and through realization and that this map from his understanding is very well known and it was the map that he used to guide students in their practice with him well when I told him that well that's, that's the first I ever heard of it he inquired rather uh, condemningly who have your teachers been and uh, I didn't dare say because they were all doing the retreat with him so I, <laughs> uh, I don't ever want any of you to go practice with Upandita and to have him say you don't know anything about the map and who has your teacher been so this retreat uh, we thought that it would be good to uh, at least uh, show you the map expose the map a little bit fill in some of the details so that you can uh, use it as you find useful and if it's not useful for you then forget it you can just practice and poof it'll happen but maybe you need a little more support than that. 
So the map that we're going to be talking about this retreat and that we're going to be offering instructions from and pointing towards is from the Theravada tradition as uh, practiced in, in Burma. And it is a very refined map. It's not recent. It's a couple of thousand years old, codified soon after the time of the Buddha. But it has been in the last uh, 60 or 70 years, it has been very well refined and very well articulated with experience of hundreds of thousands of meditators, both in Burma and a lot of Westerners. And so the map has been uh, presented and practiced and confirmed uh, as being a valid map or a useful map uh, just over and over again. So now it's a very refined um, and comprehensive, I might add, um, guide to practicing the teachings of the Buddha. Now, for any of you, and maybe many of you, who have looked at the list or what's available for books on the Buddha's teachings these days, there is there are more than you could ever read. And unless you have some idea of what you're looking for or looking at, you could you could wander around in Buddhist books and not really get very clear on just what it is you have to do. There's a lot of commentary and a lot of it is not particularly practice oriented. There's a lot of theory, a lot of commentary. So what I want to try to do tonight and over the course of the retreat is to offer you an overview. Certainly cannot go into the map in detail but rather to give you an overview so that you'll have some idea of what's involved in the journey. Because the journey is not a vague, amorphous, accidental wandering. While your practice may feel like that, there is a direction that practice is taking you and it's helpful to know. Awakening or enlightenment or moments of enlightenment or degrees of enlightenment are not some, you know, diffuse, vague, happen somewhere, maybe type of experience, but they're very distinctive and they're very well known and they're very uh, clearly identified experientially and the understanding that comes with them. So this is the understanding from Burma. There are other traditions that have other understandings and you can practice in, within those traditions and, and do as well as you will. You know, that, that's, some people uh, prefer that. But the value of a map like this is that if we look at it, if we resonate with it at all, if we see that it does reflect in some ways our practice, our understanding, our realization, that we can practice with confidence. It can give you a lot of confidence that the teacher who's guiding you and the path that you're on is very well known. And you can be assured that you're on the path if you know 
the map. A map also, like any other map that you might look at, offers a tremendous amount of information, a lot of knowledge, a lot of it points to a lot of the interesting uh, uh, terrain through which the journey goes. And so too this map points to a lot of the interesting, challenging, colorful, uh, terrifying terrain that the journey goes. When we know the map and we have confidence, we can then practice with a more balanced effort, not striving in a direction to accomplish or achieve or to gain something that isn't necessary, and neither coasting or mistaking wrong effort for effective practice. It also helps to clarify our understanding of what the journey is and to uh, emphasize the significant element of awareness and just how important awareness and ultimately essential understanding is to awakening. It is all about awareness and understanding. But like any good map, this map too points out the detours, the dead ends, uh, the potholes, and the places in practice that inevitably will you'll come across and if we're not aware of them or where they are or what they look like we can spend a lot of time stuck, uh, stopped, uh, hanging out at the wrong place thinking we have arrived. That's the benefit of having a good map. The danger of having a good map is you may get so fascinated with the map that you're willing to settle for an armchair travelogue instead of taking the journey. And there are a lot of skillful writers out there who can describe journeys through any country, any place in the world, and when you read it, you wonder, well, why bother going? I've, I've got it. And you really don't have it. And certainly on the spiritual journey, it's all about one's personal experience and the empirical understanding that comes from it. And, but a colorful and a very descriptive map can sometimes falsely mislead you into thinking that you've really got it because you've read it. And unfortunately, uh, our culture uh, respects that and our educational system or educational training often uh, encourages that. 
If you read it and understand it, you got it. And in the spiritual practice, it's, it's not that at all. It's if you practice it and you intuitively understand it, you come to know it for yourself from your own experience empirically, then you got it. So a map can lead to uh, a sense of uh, over-evaluation of your intellectual understanding. Another limitation of a map like this is you, when you see the breadth and depth of the journey, you may just get overwhelmed and just say, I don't think I can do it. Uh, this looks like too much. Uh, I, I don't know, so I even want to try. Because sometimes journeys are really challenging, and there are, there are, there are challenges in, in every journey. And when we you know, kind of naively start with spiritual practice and, and maybe just think, oh, I'm just going to become a better person, but then we really get into it, you know, it's not always easy. I guess you know that already. You've been sitting all day, so. <laughs> and finally, the one of the uh, additional challenges of having a map like this uh, accessible is that it can, and often does, frankly, uh, condition striving. A striving to get it, a striving to accomplish it, a striving to get to the end of it which is all, or often, wrong effort. We do have to make an effort. We do have to be diligent. But striving for experience, or striving to reach the end, is not effective. And yet, it's been my ex personal experience, and I have seen it in many other students, that uh, once they see the map, they want to kind of fill in the journey and um, it doesn't work so well. So I always caution uh, students when first getting the map and taking a look at the map or when you have potential access to the details of the map, mm -hmm. you might want to consider whether you really want to know this information before you take the journey. You know, there's you can discover a lot just wandering around in a foreign land. And, you know, it may be better to wander without a map in a foreign land than to use a map drawn by a tourist. Because, you know, it's all just personal anecdotes. But this map is a pretty uh, verified, refined and verified map. So, on this retreat, I want to offer just an overview, point out the significant uh, transition, transitional places in the journey, and point out a couple of challenging places, but leave the details for you to discover in your own practice. In that way, having had some exposure, having heard of some of this terrain, when you stumble on it in your practice, as you inevitably will, you'll remember, oh, I've heard about this. Oh, yeah, now this is familiar. Oh, this is what they were talking about. And it won't surprise you. You won't think that you're off in left field, or you won't think that you're 
practicing it effectively, you'll understand that, in fact, this is part of the journey. So with all that, I hope I haven't scared you away yet. <laughs> if you look at the uh, handout that I handed out, you'll see on the, on the side the progress of Vipassana knowledge through the stages of purification, that there are seven different purifications. There's the purification of conduct, initially, the purification of mind, following that, then the purification of view, which involves the f gaining of the first knowledge. Then there's the purification of overcoming doubt, which involves four knowledges, or four Vipassana knowledge. Purification of knowledge and vision of what is the path and not the path. Purification and knowledge of the vision of the way. And ultimately, there's purification by knowledge and vision, which includes stages of enlightenment. Oh, what do you have? So just, just briefly, I want to point out the um, major transitional places on this map. And then I want to speak in more detail about where we are today in our practice. Purification of conduct is, of course, the practice of the precepts, where we purify our speech and behavior. And for many of us, hearing about the precepts, hearing about the uh, possibility of purifying our speech and behavior. It's our first inkling of, uh, and first maybe task, and first commitment that we make uh, on the spiritual journey, where we, we really take on the responsibility for uh, guiding our life in relationship more skillfully. And this is really important uh, initiation into the spiritual journey, even though we may think, I just want to be enlightened, or I just want to be peaceful, or I just want to be calm. It all starts with our commitment to speaking and acting uh, carefully and in a way that does not cause harm to others or ourself and thereby uh, preserves or supports harmony in our relationships. If we cannot strive to maintain harmonious relationships or if we just have a lot of difficulty in our personal relationships for whatever reason, it's very difficult to explore the mind very deeply because there's just too much tension, there's too much anger, there's too much frustration, there's too much resentment, there's too much guilt, there's too much uh, pain in living carelessly in our relationships with one another. And so until we really make the commitment and begin to purify our speech and behavior, really watching how carefully we relate to one another, uh, it's not going to be possible to calm the mind down 
and to see more deeply into the causes and conditions that lead to even subtler levels of suffering. And so the, the um, practice of the precepts, as you know, can often prompt uh, a personal history review, which is rather shaming, humiliating, and quite you know, confronting, because we all haven't been angels our whole life. And so we get to see in vivid uh, technicolor awareness how we have lived in the past and the, the, the damage that we've caused to ourselves and others and the, the difficulties in our relationship from being careless. And so even this initial practice on the spiritual path is very confronting. And it's often uh, not easy to just say, okay, I'll, 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 do di I'll do it differently. I'll live differently. In part because the habits that we have cultivated um, over our life are very deeply embedded and our sense of ourself is deeply entwined with the way we live, the behaviors and the misbehaviors that we act out. And so uh, even, even this very initial uh, part of the, the practice can be a very challenging, frustrating um, a practice. But one of the dangers even of taking on, or I should say the benefit of really taking on a commitment to the practice of right speech, right action, or care and consideration in a relationship is that we feel empowered when we make that commitment. We feel like we are really embarking on a, a, you know, a program of improvement in our life. And we can see that it does uh, protect us. If you make a commitment to really exercise restraint in harmful behavior, it protects you. It protects you from acting out carelessly. You might still act out, but not so blindly, not so habitually, not so strongly. And you might do it with a lot of regret and remorse. But it does give you a, an enhanced, uh, I want to say sense of self. It doesn't really enhance yourself, but it, it, it affirms your intention to uh, develop this side of you, spiritual side of you. One of the uh, dangers or one of the limitations of, of uh, undertaking this uh, purification of speech and behavior is that we sometimes get pretty strident about it and we, we, we kind of take on more than we can actually handle and we get very critical of ourselves and others for even the slightest infraction where even the slightest misslip of speech or behavior and we just get very condemning of ourselves and others and this is uh, not so helpful it's good to see when we slip but the condemning and the holier-than-thou attitude is is really not is not the path. 
but it's a danger that comes with making a commitment and trying to fulfill it. It also requires a very realistic uh, appraisal of our uh, strengths and our limitations. And sometimes that's hard to uh, acknowledge that we, when we see how we've lived our life and we see the, the pain we've, we've caused ourselves and others, it can be just really burdensome to, to carry around that guilt, uh, that fear, or that remorse and it, takes, it sometimes takes some time to uh, clean up our act, so to speak. But it's necessary because stability of mind or calmness of mind isn't possible without doing that remedial uh, work uh, on our heart. So that's a, an initial place to get, to get going. With the purification of our speech in behavior, we are already beginning to purify the mind. Purifying the mind means dealing with the hindrances, dealing with the defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion of one form or another. And if you're going to live in relationship to others, you have to watch your greed, hatred, and delusion. But the purification of speech and behavior is on a grosser level than the purification of mind. <coughs> So purification of mind is really the practice we do when we start meditating. When we sit down and we start looking at the mind, well, you know what you see. Sometimes it's a mess, you know? And, and what you see is a tremendous amount of very strongly habituated uh, commentary, judgments, fears, ambitions, uh, self-condemning, opinionated uh, ideas about ourselves and others. And it's just, it's very deeply uh, conditioned uh, and it's very strong. And so when we start really paying attention to the mind, we see it. And what we see is all the justifications, the rationalizations, the explanations and the reasoning for being the way we are. And, we, and we're suffering, and we see that. And so we have to confront through direct awareness, through direct observation, you know, our opinions, our beliefs, our fantasies, our fears, our judgments, our hatreds, our irritations, mm -hmm. impatience, all of the defilements. And this is really challenge because as you know you've been, you've been looking at them today the defilements are just really well let's put it this way the defilements have become our personality they are so deeply embedded and we act on them so often and so blindly and so consistently now, I'm not saying you're bad people or I'm a bad person. It's just that we're not careful. And when we see that, uh, we see that, gosh, my very sense of myself is based on all these judgments, all these attachments, all these fears. And that's what we have to deal with. And so I want to speak about uh, 
purifying uh, the mind because in that we're really working with the defilements and how to understand that. The Buddha said, the mind by nature is radiant and pure, it's shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. We suffer, whenever you suffer, it is because the mind is being visited by some temporary force. Some, something has entered the mind causing you to suffer. And it's visiting. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't live there. It's not inherent there. It's just visiting. And, I might add, we don't yet understand it. We don't see it. And so we get entangled in it. And it's the entanglement in that visiting force that causes the suffering. So it's important that we understand what the defilements are, what the danger of the defilements are, and how to work with them in our practice. Because for many of us, it is a, uh, it's the first major hurdle, is really learning how to handle the defilements so that we can put them aside temporarily for uh, at least a, a short period of time, a sustained period of time. So what are the defilements? As, as we know, they're any form of greed, hatred, or aversion in any form, or delusion. Any form of attachment, identification, uh, aversion of disliking, irritation, impatience, and delusion, just not understanding, or not understanding correctly. And we act these out in our behaviors. We feel them in our emotions and feelings, in our moods. We justify them, rationalize them, and massage them into, uh, into being more active with our thoughts. And they, they really take roots as beliefs in our mind. We really believe the story that the defilements tell us about ourselves and about others, about the world. And, you know, they cause suffering. Delusion is ignorance. It's just not knowing or knowing wrongly. When delusion is accompanied by attachment in any form, it causes the mind to see only the pleasant aspect of something. That's the very power of delusion with attachment. It causes us to see only the pleasant aspect. Even if you're looking at something that has two sides, pleasant and limited, if there's attachment in the mind, all you see is the pleasant. On the other hand, when delusion is accompanied by aversion, it causes the mind to see only the unpleasant aspect. So you look at someone when you have a lot of attachment to them, and they look great. They look wonderful. They look like the person you could spend the rest of your life with. And then your mind changes, the attachment leaves, and aversion arises, and you look at the same person and you think, what is right with you? You know, and all you can see is what's wrong with them. And it's the same person. It's your mind that has changed from attachment to aversion. And so you see different aspects of the same phenomena. We don't see this. We don't see it. Because that is the very nature of delusion. And so 
right with that, we should understand that when we see aversion in our mind or when we see attachment in our mind or when we see a strong reaction to someone or something, we should be on alert. Delusion is present. When we have a strong reaction, no. Delusion's here. It's coloring this situation. We're not seeing this clearly. And, and just proceed with caution from that point on. And because the, the defilements are so habitual, it's as if they've become the default setting of the mind. You know, I, I, I like to say, I mean, I don't like to say, I often say, I was not born with the patience gene. I, it just didn't come in my package. You know, for whatever reason, impatience has been my practice, and it still is. I'm married to a woman whose name is Patience, Pacencia. And I, I guess that's my practice, you know, dealing with patience. But, uh, <laughs> but the other thing about our identification with defilements is that it really feels like this is how I am. I am an impatient person or I am an angry person. I am a frustrated person. I'm a disappointed. I'm a whatever. Because it recurs. You know, something that recurs over and over or arises frequently, we kind of globalize it into an eternal experience. And of course it's not. But delusion causes us to imagine that it's always there. Since I've seen it a hundred times today, it must really be there even when I'm not seeing it. Not true. But it takes awareness to see them. So the defilements we can see are, are around. They're uh, powerful. Uh, they're hard to see. The danger of them is, as the Buddha said, they cause us to suffer. When the mind is filled with any unwholesome state of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion in any form, it causes unpleasant sensation in the body and it conditions unpleasant mental states. We feel irritated, we feel upset, we feel you know, kind of agitated. That's the unpleasantness, that's the suffering that's caused by or conditioned by the defilements. But we should be clear when the mind, when a defilement arises in the mind, greed, hatred, delusion, it doesn't obscure, it doesn't hide what we're looking at or what we see. We see the person, we see the car, we see the food, we see the refrigerator, we, we see it, we see the object, but the delusion or the defilement causes us to understand it wrongly. We don't see it accurately. We see it through a distorted lens. And so we get attached, or we get obsessed, or we get addicted, or we get angry, or we get frustrated, because we don't understand the person, we don't understand the experience, we don't understand the object correctly. So this is tricky because we think, oh, delusion, we're not going to see, it. we believe, what we see, we see correctly. Don't you? When you see your mind, you see others' behavior, and you have an opinion of it, you think that that's really the way they are. And it's not. 
It's your mind that you're seeing. It's the delusion in your mind that's causing you to believe you're seeing things correctly when in fact you're seeing things wrongly or you're misunderstanding them. So when you're suffering in any way, frustrated, disappointed, upset, whatever it is, be aware. Just know delusion is at play here. The greatest danger of defilements is when we're unaware of them and we act them out. Because when we're unaware that there's a defilement in the mind or even that something is unwholesome and we act it out, we have no regrets, no second thoughts, we act with full energy repeatedly and the strength of all of that energy is the strength of the karma. And the result comes back equally strongly. We call this transgressive defilements because we're acting them out in a way that causes immediate harm to others and immediate and subsequent harm to ourselves. Luckily, we're not in jail yet. Okay. <laughs> so we see some of those defilements, but what we see in practice, as you all have no doubt seen today, is even though when you're here in this protected place and you've taken the precepts and you're not acting out in any way to cause harm to anyone here, the mind can still be obsessed with defilements. You can be thinking about doing what you're restraining yourself from doing. And the mind can be tormented with attachment, aversion, confusion. We call these the obsessive defilements. If we don't act them out and don't speak them, well, they're not, they're not harming others. But we still have to deal with the unpleasantness in our own mind if we're not just being mindful of them. If they're just running rampant in our own mind, you know what it's like to be obsessed with, you know, getting revenge on somebody or seducing somebody. It's just you get obsessed and it's like, you know, the mind is relentless, like pit bull mind. You know, it's like, won't let go. And we all know that. This is the practice of purifying the mind. To purify the mind of that kind of defilement, we have to be willing to confront it. We have to be willing to acknowledge it and just see, this is the way it is. This is how painful it is. And just to endure it, to not act it out as, as long as we can, and to really try to understand how this is happening. Feel it, recognize it, recognize the story of it, feel the sensations, feel what it feels like in the body, watch all the rationalizations in the mind and and in time we come to understand oh this is the nature of this defilement this is the nature of resentment this is the nature of revenge this is the nature of anger this is the nature of desire this is the nature of fear and it is the understanding of the defilement that removes it from the mind it's not because we ignore it that it's going to leave the mind. It's not because we act it out that it's going to leave the mind. It's not because we kind of, you know, kind of explain it away, but it's because we understand it. When we deeply understand 
how this defilement has arisen. What are the causes and conditions for it? What is its nature? How do we act it out? What's the trigger for us? Then with that understanding, we can begin to catch it every time that conditions conspire to give rise to a defilement. We see, we see the conditions forming before the defilement takes root in the mind. You have to see it a few times in order to have that level of understanding. Because the potential to react with an unwholesome reaction, a defiled reaction, lies dormant in the mind. Even if it's not arising now, maybe you're not angry now, maybe you're not impatient now, maybe you're not frustrated now, or seeking revenge. But we know conditions change. Things happen. And if we haven't deeply understood and even uprooted the seed of this reaction from the mind, there'll come a time and we'll get caught again. Well, this being willing to take on the practice, the journey to uproot these potential seeds from the mind. This is our journey. This is a journey. When we get a glimpse of the immensity of what we're looking at, it can be overwhelming. It can be really uh, terrifying. Like, how in the world am I ever going to do it? But we can. And many of you are not. I mean, you're not bad people. You know, we're not. We're not bad people. We're not. You know. But we also see that we've got plenty of defilements that arise in the mind that have to be dealt with. And for those of you who've done retreats before, you know that even after a seven-day retreat or a longer retreat, you have much greater clarity, much greater commitment, much greater understanding, and a lot more restraint with all the defilements, even with one week. Imagine that you practice with that level of commitment for the rest of your life. Oh, that, that makes things look very different. And that really is the kind of commitment we need, really, to make a commitment to walk the path for the rest of our life. It's not like we're going to finish it next week and then we can get back to our old habits. It, it doesn't work that You know, it's like you walk the path, you finish, you finish the habits. They don't come back. You know, you don't, you're not saving them for later. And this is, this is the challenge, you know, to see it for the last time, to see yourself caught in any of the defilements for the last time. Imagine. It's possible. It's possible. The last time you get angry, the last time you get irritated, the last time you get frustrated, the last time you seek revenge, the last... It's possible. The last time you doubt, the last time you fear, the last time. That's the journey we're on. So it can seem overwhelming, but if you actually practice, even for a week, you'll get confirmation of what's involved in the journey. And it's not that overwhelming. You know, moment by moment, we can wake up. We can exercise restraint. We can begin to understand, we can see things the way they are.
and we can let go. We can let go of acting out, we can let go of obsessing, and we can let go of holding on for until later. We can let go. <clears throat> this is the this is the challenge of 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 practice practicing with the defilements. We need to know that they're defilements. We need to know that they cause suffering. We need to see them in all of their proliferations. Or we won't do anything about them. We'll think, ah, I can, I can get by with that. You know, I, I can live with that. I can live with that level of fear. I can live with that level of anxiety. I can live with that level of frustration. I can live with that level of impatience. We say that or we believe that only when we haven't seen how much suffering it really is to live with them. In practice, one helpful understanding in working with the defilements, purifying the mind, is to know that you will see them. They will come up. Just because they come up does not mean you're practicing wrongly. How are you going to gain understanding of the nature of these defilements if you don't see them? Really, you've got to see them. So when they arise, you don't have to kind of feed them, you just have to acknowledge them. Since you're here, let me take a look. And really know that as long as you are recognizing and observing or being mindfully aware of the defilements as they manifest in the mind, as they manifest in your speech, as they manifest in your behavior, and as they condition sensations in the body. If you're observing them, you're not entangled in them. And it's, you're, you're growing in understanding, which will, in time, uproot them from the mind. So, when you meet you know, frustration and disappointment, fear and anxiety, and all of them in your practice. Don't let it be overwhelming. If you get entangled in them, they'll, they'll be overwhelming. But if you're willing to acknowledge and take a look and be mindfully aware of them, you're doing well. You really are, you know, engaging in the journey. The, the challenge of really coming to understand, oh, this is the nature of the defilement. And in time, you will understand. And you'll understand how you get entangled, how you get caught, how they arise, and how to be free, how to let them go. This phase of practice, I should say, is, uh, there's a lot of, uh, coming and going. There are times when we have a lot of understanding, a lot of commitment, a lot of energy, a lot of purity of mind. And we can go for sustained periods of time without really getting too entangled in the defilements. And then there are other times when you can't see anything but your fear, your anxiety, your impatience. And so it's not a straight line, you know, climb to the top. It's pretty erratic and it tends to be, you know, challenging. It's frustrating. It's, uh, we, we have a lot of judgment of ourselves, and, and we can lose faith uh, at times that we're practicing effectively or that we're uh, making any progress. 
So it's good to know that this, this, is, this is what the journey involves, so that when you are temporarily overwhelmed with defilements, you don't give up. But you keep, you, you do what you can, work with it, knowing that things change. And there'll be another, another experience soon that's, that's very different. <coughs> While we are engaged in the task of coming to know the defilements, there's often and usually a tremendous amount of pain, emotional pain and physical pain, and just uh, a lot of uh, sense of ourself that is just very vulnerable. We just feel very uh, besieged by uh, the defilements in part because we need to really feel how much suffering they cause us or we won't work with them. We'll try to avoid them. We'll try to get by. We'll try to slip, slip around them. And so in some ways we have to feel really very sensitively how painful they are. There are many kinds of meditation to avoid all that. You can tranquilize the mind through many kinds of practices. Uh, any kind of tranquility practice can so tranquilize the mind that you don't have to deal with those hindrances, those defilements in that way. It's good, for, it's good to know those practices because they offer a temporary relief. But they don't, that kind of practice does not offer understanding. So temporary relief through a tranquility practice is helpful when the defilements get overwhelming. But do not mistake, please do not mistake tranquility for understanding. Just because we can tranquilize the mind in a moment or for a period of time doesn't mean that we have understood the defilements or haven't uprooted them from the mind. This, this can be a danger. So it takes a lot of endurance, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of willingness to, to keep looking at this. But in time, we will see periods of time, it might be for five minutes, it might be for five hours, it might be for five days, when really we don't have many defilements, where there's just an ongoing presence of mind, acknowledging, as Lamin spoke about last night, present moment physical, mental experience, where you're just with. This is what's going on in the body, this is what's going on in the mind, and you're not entangled in it. And you're just able to be with it. You don't have any story about the future, you don't have any story about the past, you don't have any you know, ambition to be anywhere but just right here. Maybe it hasn't happened on the first day of the retreat, but you know, as the retreat goes on, there will be periods of time where you'll see. You're just, you're just here. You're just with it, and there's no strong, uh, painful reaction, no struggle with your experience. Recognize those, because those are confirming uh, experiences that, oh, through practice, we can put aside the defilements temporarily. And when the defilements are put aside temporarily, we have reached, or we've attained, this purity, the purification of mind which is the preliminary to uh, really beginning the pasana practice. 
So you don't have to be pure mind all the time, but for periods of time. So look for it that way. With the purification of mind, where we're not really entangled in the hindrances, we can begin to see things clearly. We begin to see, oh, this is the way things are. This is the way it is in the body. This is the way it is in the mind. As Lamint was saying last night, you are present with the physical experience that's arising now without any story about it. We're no, 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 not trying to get rid of it, not indulging in it. You just see it. Same with the mind. You see, oh, this is the way the mind is. Without any story about it, without any judgment of it, you just see very nakedly. Because there's no defilements in the mind, you understand things correctly. The first thing that we understand, or the first uh, knowledge that we really gain, that has to be kind of firmly embedded in our, in our mind, is that we see the nature of the mind and the body clearly. And what we see is the body, you know, the experiences we have of the body, they just happen. They happen due to causes and conditions that we do not control. You know, there's pulsing, vibrating, tingling, heat, cold, pain, there's all kinds of stuff in the body that you've been observing today. And you don't make it happen. There's no you doing it. It's just, it's just happening, right? If you get, you know, if you eat too much, you have this kind of feelings in the body. If you don't eat, you have this kind of feelings in the body. If you don't get enough sleep, you have these kind of feelings in the body. Causes and conditions give rise to the way the body is, the way the body is experienced. We see this. Sure, we can intend to move, we can intend to go to the bathroom, we can intend to eat, and we can change. In that, in that way, we can change the physical experience. But in fact, a lot of what we observe, just sitting quietly, the body's on, the body's on its own track. I'm not making this up, am I? Right? The other thing we see is the mind is just like that too. <laughs> you know, the mind, it's as if the mind has a mind of its own. Right? It's just, we can tell the mind, please be mindful. Does it obey? We can tell the mind, please be calm. Please don't get angry. Don't get irritated. Does it obey? No. It does well. It is also deeply conditioned. It's not under our immediate and extensive control. We can exercise some restraint. We can turn the mind in some directions. But a lot of what the mind does is because of causes and conditions that we do not control. It doesn't mean that we have no control or no effect. We are responsible for the mind. You know, whatever is going on there, it's our responsibility to either to choose, to act it out or not to exercise our own discretion, discernment, wisdom, to know what to do with it. But in fact, a lot of what the mind does is, well, you know, it's just its own thing. And we see that. You know, we, you know in spite of our you know, belief that we're really in control, we see it over and over and over again. And until we get it, until we really understand, oh, this is the way it is, you know, the body is like this. The body is like a log laying in the forest mm -hmm. that bugs are crawling on and, you know, things are growing on and, and it's decomposing and it's just, it's just like a log. It's just like, like a log laying in the forest. 
The mind is, is what knows all that. It's the mind that knows. The body doesn't know anything. It's the mind that knows. So when we look at our experience, moment to moment, we see something, physical or mental, is being known. This is the knowledge. This is the first knowledge that we, that we really get. In every moment, there's something, some physical experience or some mental experience or some environmental experience, is being known. The knowing is the mind. The things that are known as the body and the mind, or physical and mental. That's it. If we really see that, we really understand, oh, this is what's going on. Every moment there's just, there's just something being known. It begins to loosen the glue of our identification with this process. And that's really important. Because we're so identified with, I'm the one who's doing this. It's my body. It's my mind. I'm making it happen. I'm responsible. I'm, when in fact, what we see over and over and over again, and you've had ample confirmation of it today, is ain't necessarily so. And so you can see that to confront our delusions, our wrong understandings, is very, very difficult. Our beliefs just in just insist on being believed and until we just see over and over and over again that it's not right it's wrong is that it's not that way you know these, these understandings take some persistence we have to persist in our practice until we see oh, this is the way it is it's just something being known in every moment and I can't control it can't control the body can't control the mind I have to exercise discretion discernment and restraint but a lot of it is automatic. Why is that important? This, this, this knowledge is important mm -hmm. to, to begin to undermine this attachment identification with a sense of self because the rest of practice involves even greater recognition and realization of how uh, impersonal this whole process is. So we're at the purification of views where we're talking about the knowledge of discerning mental and physical phenomena. In subsequent talks of the retreat, I'm going to uh, fill in more knowledge of the remaining, or I should say the immediately subsequent knowledge and a little bit more about the uh, further, further reaches of the path. Just so you can begin to see the terrain that your journey will take you on and that you can proceed with some confidence in uh, and faith that uh, you can walk the path and you can recognize the terrain and there are those among us who can guide you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.